Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Good morning. Episode number 50, April 2nd. Can you believe that we've done 50 of these? It's been, it's been fun. It's been a good ride. It has been fun. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, something we've never done before. We will be looking at the New York Times uh, opinion page for April 2nd. And we'll be trying to... Okay, I got it pulled up. Uh, Sort of just read through some of the op-eds and give our opinion on them. Give some fair use commentary on the op-eds in the New York Times opinion page. Does that sound like a rockin' good time to you? Because it sure does to me. Sounds good to me. Uh, But before we get started, yesterday was open day, opening day, in the Colorado Rockies season and the pitcher i believe his name is bard let me get his real name daniel bard so the daniel bard is an american professional baseball player he played for the rocky um for the boston red sox between 29 2009 and 2013 he was really good at the beginning of his career he could throw 102 miles an hour and then he got a case of the yips which is you're in your own head and you can't perform. He couldn't throw a strike to save his life. And I think he limped along for a couple more years. And he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't pitch anymore. I'm not accurate anymore. So he quit baseball. He got a job as a you know, baseball psychologist guy for the Diamondbacks. And he was out of baseball for seven years. He wanted to come back. The Rockies signed him. Yesterday, opening day, he's a relief pitcher. The Rockies are up 8-5. Against, I forget who the hell were they playing. I watched, I listened to the whole game. I forget who they were playing. But they put in Daniel Bard in the ninth inning. And they got this three run lead. He's supposed to be the closer. The first guy gets a hit. He walks the next guy. He walks the next guy. It's eight to five. All of a sudden, the bases are loaded. And you're like, if this guy screws this up, he's going to quit baseball forever. But what happens next? Strikeout, strikeout, line drive out. He clears the side, and the Rockies win 8-5, and that is the beauty of baseball. <laughs> yeah. The Bard of Denver. Yep. Daniel Bard. So I thought that was an uplifting story. I feel like, like every uplifting story, it could have gone horribly in the other direction. That's true. And if he would have given up a grand slam to that last batter instead of a line drive out, he may never be the same. You know? Yep. But that's life. That's what the people say. You're up in April, then you're down in May. And that's baseball. That's Mm -hmm. baseball. Anything could happen. And, you know, it's 90% mental. The other half is physical. That's right. So, that's one story for the day, but that's not the topic of today's podcast. The topic is... Uh, the New York Times opinion page. So, shall we get into it? Well, another topic before we get into it is uh, today you're getting your vaccination. I know. I'm excited. I Obviously, there's a little bit of concern. I just hope nothing goes wrong because there's incidents of people getting sick or feeling bad or even having mm-hmm. bad, you know, viral, uh, not viral, uh, allergic reactions to the shot. But... I've been happy since it got scheduled two days ago for today. I've really been uh, 
looking forward to the things that I'll be able to do once I'm vaccinated that I did not have the, I didn't feel like it was responsible to maybe go to my local bar and see some of my friends. I haven't done that in since February of last year. So it just, the reason why I didn't do that, it's not like because I was scared. I mean, in a certain respect, I'm scared of the virus. I don't want to get it. I don't want to give it to anyone. I'm afraid that if I got it, I might have complications. But in another respect, it's just plain irresponsible. If you're not vaccinated, it's irresponsible to go down to your local bar and see people and chit chat with people because, you know, you could contract coronavirus from them. And even if you're okay, you could give it to some 98-year-old lady at the grocery store. And it's just a lack of responsibility, lack of respect for the disease. Now, obviously, people say, oh, but I've heard that bad things happen when you get the vaccine. Well, those are in in terms of pure statistical odds, they're an order of magnitude smaller than the bad things that happen from actually getting the disease. And so it's it's fascinating to see, like, now that I'm getting the vaccine, yeah, you do worry about you might have a potential complication with the vaccine, but your chances of having a potential complication of the vaccine are a fraction, a tiny fraction of your chances of having a complication with the disease. So the probability, uh, the the number of cases where you had complication with the vaccine is maybe in the dozens. Uh, getting it, getting the disease is in the millions. Mm-hmm. And dying from the disease is the hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. And so that just does not make sense. Well, I think and that it's well, irresponsible. But I can see what people's ideology is. It's I can wear a mask, I can social distance, and I probably won't get the disease. But if you go and you get something shoved into your arm, you're being proactive and you might get in trouble because of that. You know, something you do. Yeah, yeah. it's something you do. It's active. But. There's also the very real and very true argument that if you go get vaccinated, you're helping prevent the spread. And there's some sort of civic duty that you're performing by simply taking advantage of the government's uh, facilitation of your vaccination. We're well, all we're all in this together, right? Another way to look at that is uh, whether you're vaccinated or not really tells a lot about your personality. Are you, uh, do you just care about yourself and you don't care about other people? And you don't trust, you don't trust uh, science. You don't trust uh, the ability to be safe and to have other people safe. Yeah, it was, you know, in, I saw a article a few months ago, so early on in the vaccine, and it was about healthcare, frontline healthcare workers when they were um, along with the extremely elderly the only people eligible. It was during the first wave of vaccinations and they were saying, and it says something about your personality, but I think it says something about your intelligence as well. Because I mean, yes, education does not equal intelligence, but they said of the frontline health workers eligible for the vaccine, amongst medical doctors, 98% have gotten it. Amongst registered nurses, 95% have gotten it. 
amongst certified nurses assistants, 80% have gotten it. Like as you went down in the amount of education that you had to have to have your frontline healthcare position, the less education you had, the less likely you were to get the vaccine. And I thought that was a fascinating sort of graph and article they said. So, so if you're in a healthcare, frontline healthcare position, but uh, all it took was a high school diploma, you'd be less likely to get the vaccine than if you were an MD and you had to go to school for eight years and do three years of residency. Well, I think that's not the issue. I think the issue is how, uh, how close are they to the patients? Yeah, the CNAs will be closer to the patients than the MDs. Uh, yeah, but the CNAs deal with uh, things around them. The MDs are dealing with the disease itself. That's true. But I, I but I, also we're going to be talking about one of the op eds is how COVID changed your uh, personality. Yeah, and that's so I think we, the the neurological effects because I've been following the New York Times coverage of that. And oh, it's, okay, it's fascinating. Uh, the long haul neurological effects of COVID, or oh, maybe maybe it's maybe it's social. There's social effects too. Oh yeah, um, I know I'm different than I was a year ago. Mm-hmm. I like staying at home. I, I like staying at home too, but. When I found out I was eligible for the vaccine that night, yeah. which was, I mean, we scheduled it two days ago, so it was yesterday, eve, not yesterday evening, two nights ago, I was looking mm -hmm. at flights. I was like, where can I go once I'm vaccinated? I can go somewhere <laughs> again. So uh -huh. so there's that. Um, should we get into our, should we start with how COVID can change your personality? Yeah, well, might as well. Since I'm getting my vaccine today, let's get into it. How COVID, with that one. how COVID can change your personality, distancing and isolation shaped who we are. You're right. It is about the social aspect by David yep. Brooks. I don't know about you, but I've found the latest stage of the pandemic hard in its own distinct way. The cumulative effect of a year of repetition, isolation and stress has induced a lassitude, a settling into the familiar with feelings of vulnerability. The shock of a year ago has been replaced by a sluggish just getting to the end. I've got the same scattered memory issues many others in this Groundhog Day life describe, walking into a room and wondering why I went in there, spending impressive amounts of time looking for my earbuds, forgetting the names of people and places outside my COVID bubble. My extroversion muscles have atrophied while my introversion mus muscles are bulging. If you tracked me on a personality chart, I suppose liveliness would be down and reserved would be up, carefree down and anxious up. Which gets me wondering how a year plus of social distancing has changed our personalities. The good news is that personality traits are pretty stable. They change, but gradually, over decades. In normal times, they generally change for the better. Research shows that most people get more calm, self-confident, and socially sensitive as they mature. But we are molded by our experiences, and it would be shocking if an experience this jarring didn't mold us in some important way. Those who've lost a loved one or nearly died themselves have, have their own stories to tell. Adolescents and young adults have generally had a hellish time, at least in my circles, forced into solitude at the very moment when their identities are most vividly forming. I've been exceptionally lucky in family and in health and can speak only about the effects of isolation rather than the disease itself. I'd say the most underappreciated effect it has has been the accumulation of absences, the joys we missed rather than the blows we received. The favorite sound, my favorite sound is people laughing around the table at a bar late at night. 
that has been absent for a year. And I would hate to see a chart that tracked how many times Americans laughed each day, 2019 versus 2020. There are all the concerts we didn't go to, the plays and dinner parties we didn't enjoy. Few of us got to experience the delight of finding ourselves in a social set we knew nothing about. This is a loss of emotional nutrition. It manifests socially as loneliness. 36% of Americans, including 61% of young adults, report serious loneliness, according to a survey by the Making Caring Common Project at Harvard. I've been surprised by how much it feels like not just a social problem, but a moral one. We say we feel a sense of purpose and mission when we are serving a cause larger than ourselves, but I've learned this year how much having a feeling of purpose depends on the small acts of hospitality we give and receive each day, sometimes with people we don't know all that well. It's hosting a dinner party and noticing that somebody's glass is nearly empty. It's having a stranger on a plane confide something in you and you being a momentary presence in her life. I used to have my meetings at the same coffee shop in D.C., and all around me I'd overhear conversations between friends, offering each other counsel and care. Those little acts, giving fruit to each other, turning out to be tremendously fortifying. Feeling like you have a sense of purpose, it turns out, is not just about the big commitments, but also about the small gift exchanges you have with your middle ring friends. Those opportunities have been diminished, and my work has expanded to fill the hours. I've unwittingly asked work to provide things it is incapable of supplying. This year should have been the ideal opportunity to take a step back and self-reflect. I know a lot of people who've done important inner work this year, and a lot of people were just too exhausted. I found it hard recently to plan for the future, because from the continent of lockdown, I found it hard to imagine what life will be like when this is over, and we live in a continent of freedom. Pandemic year feels like a parenthesis in our life narratives. How will we, those of us whose losses have been comparatively small, think about this experience five years from now? As a gift, an anguish, or perhaps just a void? I'm trying to describe a year in which we've all been physically hunkered down, but socially and morally less connected. This has induced, at least in me, a greater fragility, but also a great sense of flexibility and a greater potential for change. I found I've burned out on my screens, burned out about the politicization of everything, and have rediscovered my love for the New York Mets. People who have endured an era of vulnerability emerge with great strength. I'm also convinced that the second half of this year is going to be more fantastic than we can imagine right now. We are going to become hyper-appreciators, savoring every small pleasure, living in a thousand delicious moments, getting together with friends and strangers, and seeing them with the joy of new and grateful eyes. The end. Let's discuss. Okay. Initial impressions coming from you. Well, uh, what he's saying is, is that, yeah, it's, it's going to change us. Um, my thinking is, uh, as I was reading it, listening to you read it, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I, I could I could recognize changes in me and the people I work with and people around and and it changes your uh, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It changes uh, where you seek joy. Uh, you're seeking it in different places now. You're seeking it a different way. Uh, uh, but I've also seen that um, uh, when you have lack of information and not being around people like at work, not being around people at work, you don't have those visual cues. Mm -hmm. You don't have that social interaction. Uh, you have emails, maybe, 
and maybe a Zoom, which is very, which is which is virtual, but it is real time. But you still are not in the room, mm-hmm. and so the cues are different. Without that information, uh, when that information decreases, uh, I think it's human nature to always assume the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they don't understand me, or uh, they are going to try to do something to undermine, or uh, who knows what they're doing when the camera's off, you know? Yeah. And if you're there in the room with them, uh, it's much more much more engaging and social, and you get to you get to learn uh, people at work more. And uh, uh, but then when your camera's off, and sometimes I've been in meetings when their camera's off and then they say, oh, they address the person. The person's obviously not not there because they've blocked it off in Zoom. Uh, so you can do that. It's, it's kind of nice. But on the other hand, you're talking and they're not even listening. They're not even there. Yeah. And I, so I think I think that the psychological part of it, uh, apart from the social, there's a psychological part of looking at the negative part, n- negative side of uh, of uh, your job and your friendship your your recreation uh human nature always assumes uh most people uh assume a pessimistic view and so i think that i think we're confronted with that so we have to say wait a minute that well if you can reflect self-reflect and say hey that's true maybe i shouldn't be doing that maybe i should uh engage people uh and recognize the engagement which is virtual is uh, and try to glean the same amount of benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So there's a learning, there's a social learning, and a psychological learning as well. And I, like you mentioned at the beginning, there's also a medical learning. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the psychological is individual psycho- psychology and also group psychology. You know, what, what is our community doing? What is the uh, like the guy saying, our friends, our friendship, social circle. What are they doing? How are they, how have they evolved? Yeah. How is our work, social evolved? So how how are things evolved from this? Uh, like uh, any type of uh, negative aspects of uh, anything negative that happens and a challenge that you get through, uh, you look back and humans are going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. So what? So another article, follow up article from this. Okay, what have we learned? How have we changed socially, psychologically, intellectually? How have we changed? Yeah, I uh, list some initial thoughts. I mean, I think that it's interesting. Uh, the idea of we're going to be hyper appreciators. Can't wait to go to a, a ball game or a dinner party or, a, you know, go see a concert. or And so it's like, oh, we're going to appreciate the arts again. And it's like. A lot of those arts organizations won't be around. I mean, one year killed them. But also, it's sort of like, what, what as an artist, could you do to sort of capitalize on this period of hyper-appreciation? I mean, I think now is the time to strike while the iron's hot, if you are I think an artist. Pre- I think the appreciation for the arts uh, is, first of all, is creating the art. The other is experiencing the art, and the other is prolonging the art, you know, and 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 building on it. Uh, well, those things have changed. It's not the same as before. Mm-hmm. But 
people might hanker for the old way. You play a show at a bar, and it's packed shoulder to shoulder. Um, I guess what I was getting at is, you know, instead of looking at it at a philosophical view, looking at it as a musician, as an artist, what are you going to do to capitalize upon this newfound hyper-appreciation of, you know, let's have an art show. You know, let's have an art show in August. You know, most people will be vaccinated by then. Let's have wine and cheese, and let's cram everyone into this art gallery, and I'll probably be able to sell more paintings in August than I ever would. Yes, it's been a hard year, but now is the time to galvanize the resources and strike while the iron's hot, while everyone wants to come back and appreciate life again. You know, let's play a concert. Let's play a concert at a bar and have 200 people there shoulder to shoulder because we can do that again, and it's more likely that you'll sell the place out now than it was in 2019. And there are people who are having virtual concerts now, though. That they didn't they didn't have before. Yeah, but yeah, this uh, virtual and the virtual concert is but not people just are, local. But people are sick and tired of virtual concerts. Like my friend Ian, I said, yeah, maybe we could watch a movie virtually. He's like, I'm sick and tired of watching virtual events because he goes to all the movie events. Um, he's there, and all the real in-person screenings have gone. And he says, I've tried it. I've tried to do the virtual events. It's not the same. It's not the same as sitting in a theater with people around you and sort of seeing how they react to a movie and you're part of a crowd. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is, yes, the world has changed. We've sort of opened up avenues to enjoyment of the arts that are digital. But in this next year, I guess the point that I'm trying to make and the point that he was making, there's going to be a period of hyper-appreciation of the old analog mode of enjoying stuff. It's not sort of like... Well, these doors have been opened. How do we go further down that? It's, well, people are going to flock back to the old way of doing things. And now is the time to sort of embrace that as well. I agree. I agree. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, disagreeing with that at all. But I'm adding to it and saying that's true. They will go back. But there's no going back the way it was uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, we have changed. We've experienced uh, when it's taken away, then it's given back. Uh, you're not the same. You know what it's like not having it. So yeah, you, there is a hyper appreciation, but also there's a sense of how can I, how can I uh, appreciate this more or differently? I know, I know uh, when students have left, uh, learned virtually. Uh, they want to go back and learn in the classroom. The, the K through 12, mm -hmm. uh, the little K through six uh, kids. No, they want to be in the classroom. Why? Because that's how they've always done it, you know. But now they go back in the classroom and they will be, have a hyper appreciation. He's absolutely right. Are you excited to get back into a classroom? Uh, not really. No. So you made, the, you made the transition to virtual and you like it now. I've seen I've seen the value in both, and I think the value of teaching. At, see, I'm in higher education, mm -hmm. so uh, in a classroom, uh, the value of a classroom is social interaction, and and uh, the value of virtual teaching is that uh, the instructor has uh, much more capabilities to teach in many different ways because it forces the students to engage uh, digitally. When you're in a classroom, the students will not engage with all the resources out there. They're looking at you to, to spoon feed them. 
But if you have all these digital resources, they have to learn how to engage in all those resources. And so it serves for lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the more uh, the faculty will focus on, look, uh, the goal of higher education is far beyond knowledge. It's teaching them how to learn. Uh, uh, the most important thing you can learn in, in, in a college university is to learn how to learn. And you can learn virtually and learning virtually will carry way beyond uh, your classroom and your degree. And I think that capability has has increased significantly, at least for me. And I'm I'm encouraging people, my students, to go all different places to learn this stuff. And uh, some do, mm-hmm. uh, some don't, uh, because everyone's different. So uh, getting back in the classroom, uh, I'm going back this this summer and this fall, and uh, actually, uh, I'm going back uh, in a couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we in April? Next yeah, month April I'm going 1st. back. Next month, this is April second. Mm-hmm. Uh, next next month I'm going back. Uh, but I'm I'm going to really encourage uh, to learn from this pandemic and learn uh, on their own virtually, you know, because right now people go on YouTube and go on on what we're doing here, looking at uh, online uh, uh, articles and op eds and. Uh, they do that, but do it socially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they need to do it, uh, go beyond just the social interaction to more uh, learning uh, and then also business interactions. Yeah, I think in many ways what we do is social. We sort of take learning and then we do it socially, like reading these op-eds. And my opinion is that op-ed was just how this guy feels. His opinion is, the pandemic was long and it was lonely and I was lucky no one in my family got sick and I'm excited to get back to life. And I think that we can sort of relate to that because our experience is very similar. Wouldn't you say? Yep. Um, I'm glad that no one, I guess, I mean, I have acquaintances that had some issues, but no one very, very close to me had issues with sickness. So that's a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, but also it's not like that guy's advocating for any particular position. He's sort of just saying, hey, did you notice how when we all got locked in our homes for a year, it was lonely? It's like, yeah, I did notice that. Thanks. Thanks for writing <laughs> do, yeah. an article about that. Um, so I think that there's not a lot to discuss about this guy's thing. I think that, yes, we're all excited. I'm getting vaccinated today. You've been vaccinated. We're going to start to see a more normal life. I do believe that in in the very near future. So I say we move on. To the ship okay. stuck in the Suez Canal, freeing of the ever given. Do you want to read that? Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, by Ser- by Sergey uh, Shimeman. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Shimeman is a member of the editorial board. April first. In the end, a full moon succeeded, where many where puny machines could not wrenching the mammoth barge out of the Egyptian mud in which it became wedged six days earlier. A spring tide finally set the ever-given and its enormous stack of 18,300 shipping containers afloat again, drawing cheers from Egyptians on the shore and a virtual world beyond. Before long, some 355 uh, freighters blocked from traversing the Suez Canal hoisted anchor and began moving through. Insurers mournfully took out their uh, abacuses 
and people near and far went back to their far drearier crisis of pandemic, ailing businesses, wars, racism, uh, autocracy, and refugees. Not that this was a minor crisis. Shipping is still the primary means of moving things around the world. And the 150-year-old trench through Egypt is a critical shortcut between east and west. In 2019, almost 19,000 ships made the passage with about 1.25 billion tons of cargo, including some 50% of the world's container shipping capacity. An estimated $9.6 billion worth of freight passes through the canal daily in normal times. Other losses included $95 million in revenue for Egypt, plus disruption of supply chains, supply chains and shipping schedules for months to come. But that's not what it was about for most folks. What generated the drama was the astounding scale of the vessel, the biblical echoes of its ordeal, and the challenge of figuring out how to pry loose something the size of a prone Empire State Building that had become wedged between the banks of the canal. This ship is crazy big, the longest aircraft carriers in American service today the Gerald R. Ford class, are 200 feet shorter than the 1,312-foot, two-inch ever given. The photo of what looked like a toy-like excavator scratching at the sand under the beached iron leviathan became the icon of the saga, prompted speculation on what something of these dimensions might look like elsewhere, say on the Ohio or the Mississippi rivers. The longest lock on the Ohio is 1,200 feet, noted the Herald-Dispatch of West Virginia, but at least the Ever Given could do a U-turn in it in its wide channel. Uh, one online tool made it possible to see exactly how the Ever Given would fit in, say, the East River or the stream behind your house. Social media inevitably lit up. There were suggestions on how to dislodge the ship. Quote, uh, parenthesis, quote, my ambition, my ambitious plan to free the boat is to push a huge cotton swab up the canal. Uh, end quote. Another quote. There needs to be considerably less Egypt for this boat to go away. End quote. Encouraging words for the big ship that couldn't. Quote, you are not too much. You're entitled to take up space. If the Suez Canal doesn't have room for you, that is the Suez Canal's problem. Psychological musings, quote, there was something deeply comforting about the boat being stuck. Fantasies, quote, imagining some sort of Spartacus moment where all 300 waiting boats charged into the canal at once, clogging it irreparably. And when it finally got free, there arose a chorus of disappointment. Put it back, put that boat back in that canal right now. Back on the serious side. The Ever Given has shined a spotlight on many issues of global sea shipping, which still accounts for 70% of international trade. Container ships have been steadily growing in recent years, so that those of the size of Ever Given can't fit into the Panama Canal and can only barely squeeze through the Straits of Malacca. Yet bigger and bigger ships will soon be afloat, all sailing under the curious international uh, mishmash of the way ocean-going shipping operates. The Ever Given is owned by a Japanese company, 
operated by a Taiwan company, registered in Panama, and managed by a Germany company. The Taiwanese company, Evergreen Marine, has 11 ships the size of Evergreen, all their names beginning with Ever-G. The six-day stoppage also demonstrated how easily maritime choke points can be sealed off and at what cost. Choke points on the sea routes have been a source of conflict through much of history, and the saga of the Ever Given demonstrates just how vulnerable they remain. China, which is usually dependent on importing oil and iron to fuel its growth, has focused much of its foreign policy in recent years on keeping its trade avenue secure. This time around, there was no foul play. A burst of powerful winds swung the Ever Given around and wedged it between the banks of the canal. It might have remained there for weeks had it not been for a fortuitous full moon on Sunday, one that raised what's known as a perigean spring tide. When the moon is at perigee or closest to Earth and the sun, Earth, and the moon are aligned, causing the tide to spring higher than usual. According to CNN, the March full moon is called the worm moon by Native Americans because it's also when earth earthworm trails are most visible. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Interesting. I like that. I like that op-ed. I like how he presented it. Mm-hmm. And there is a social component. We were thinking about investing in some Egyptian ETFs uh, because... If the canal were blocked for a month or so, uh, not Egyptian, uh, South African ETFs. South African, yeah. Because uh, if the canal were blocked for a month or so, everyone has to go around and they all port in South Africa because that's the best place to port. So we were looking at FLZA. So let me pull up the stock ticker for FLZA and see. Obviously, it's not, it didn't go to the moon, but... Here's the one-day chart. Here's the five-day chart. Here's the one-month chart. So there's volatility here. This is where the ship got stuck. So they are going to see a short-term boon, I think, from the ships that decided to go around because people have to offload perishables in South Africa that they wouldn't have had to if they could just dart right through into the Mediterranean on the Suez. So South Uh Africa gets a glut of cheaper raw materials and partially finished goods. Um, And we were talking about that, but it's fascinating, too, that people will say, put it back, put it back. Uh, Because there was something about the ship getting stuck that's like, this can happen. This can happen in 2021. And it's sort of man's hubris. You build these giant ships... And maybe, maybe they weren't meant to be so big. <laughs> and then he po- points out a global security issue. Our ports are vulnerable. I mean, our, our, our canals are vulnerable. The Straits of Malacca, the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, they could be choke points for global trade. And I would like to point out that this was recognized as far back in popular culture as... Hold on, let me fig- let me get the year because I don't want to get it wrong. But it was recognized by Trey Parker and Matt Stone as far back as 2004 
and their classic movie, Team America World Police, <laughs> where Kim Jong-il and his band of Chechnyans blow up the Panama Canal. Do you remember that scene? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's been obvious that that would be a point of contention. And I think that 9-11 did cause a reckoning here in America, anyway, of what are our targets of opportunity for potential terrorists? And I remember they used to do, because I worked in water resources back in the mid-2000s, and you used to be able to tour water purification plants, and after 9-11, they were all shut off, you know, to the public, because it's like, we don't want people seeing, you know, where the water comes in, how it gets purified, and then how it gets distributed to people. Like, that is a point of potential harm to thousands and thousands of people with minimal investment. So, you know, they were all very much more secured after 9-11. And it's interesting to think that in a world where there's bad actors, simple things can make us vulnerable to such uh, danger. Like a ship getting stuck in a, in a ditch. <laughs> well, look mm -hmm. at what happened to you. You had a telephone pole snap, one telephone pole. There's probably thousands and thousands in your city, or hundreds at least. One of them snaps, and you didn't have power for a day. That night, there was a snowstorm that came in. And, of course, they got the power back in 12 hours. But what if they hadn't got the power back in 48 or 72 hours, and that snowstorm remained, and the temperatures dropped? You would have been freezing. Yep. Like, that's it, 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 what happened in Texas. Yes. Uh, when, the, when that storm came through... Uh, they lost power for a considerable amount of time, and people froze to death. Pe mm -hmm. People died of hypothermia. I also think they're and less equipped than you would have been because you have warm clothes, and in Colorado they build houses with better insulation than they do in Texas. And mm -hmm. um, so, and I, have a, and I have a basement. I'll just go in the basement. Yeah, and you could come over to my house. Yeah, <laughs> if, but, but if we were both out of power, the, it does show the vulnerability. Uh huh. That if uh, that uh, if anyone wanted to shut down the country, well, also the, the thing about uh, lack of electricity, uh, I think more importantly is the communication. It cuts down your communication for, well, you still had our phones, mm -hmm. but because on battery, but after a while it's going to go away. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can, you can uh, have a siege of uh, any type of, no matter how advanced the country is, if you cut off communications, then that's just going to start squeezing them, and eventually it's going to go away. Also, you cut off uh, ability uh, to run everything, uh, run the, the power, run your refrigerator, run uh, your heater, run your music, run everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one thing. The other thing would be water. You're right, David. You have, you have power for communication and the water for survivability. Uh, we can go without food for a long time, but not water. Yeah, it's very interesting. But but also he talks about the 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 psychological, the social part, which I think is was interesting, uh, and that's true. And it brings to mind that you and I have mentioned here more than once how uh, you have a logical issue. I mean, you have an issue. You look at the logical logic of it, uh, but it's also the humanity humanity of it. Uh, the people look at it. Uh, from a personal standpoint, mm -hmm. you know, and, and oh well, this is kind of cool. 
Yeah, but it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. But it's kind of also kind of cool, you know. It's like when uh, you're playing, when you're a kid, you're playing, you get something stuck, you're trying to get it out, you know. Yeah. And, and it, and it happened right there in real life and, uh, and a huge, huge uh, 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 barge yeah. and containers and a lot of containers. And those things are big. And that, that's why they travel over the ocean. Well, it does sort of make you less certain that everything can go according to plan. And I know that people are like, see, we don't have this world figured out. You can still get something stuck in a canal and it costs $10 billion. It's like, yes, that's true. But that's more scary than than funny or vindicating. I don't know. I think what was nice, another thing that he pointed out, which I think was really good, was that, yeah, it was it was nature that caused the accident because it was a storm that got it stuck. And then so man tried to get it out, but then it was nature <laughs> with a perigee uh, that actually uh, high tide. Uh, it was nature that helped get it out. It was the worm moon. It was the worm moon. Yeah, but by, by the Native, Native Americans. But the point is, we think we're so smart, but nature uh, is is sometimes can can uh, will trump us. Okay? Yes. And for example, uh, the Native Native the Native Americans, I think, have that correct. Have that right. Uh, they respect nature. They respect the world. They respect animals. They respect the land. They respect uh, the world. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, the people who have control of technology uh, push technology, and they forget to look at respect of the world. Uh, and uh, and uh, I guess I've told the story before. Uh, I, I like I like that idea. Uh, for me, it has a special meaning. How nature blocked it, and and nature blocked it, but also nature had a significant uh, uh, measure in actually freeing it, mm-hmm. you know? And so the nature part of it, I remember I was hunting with my dad. Remember, I think I've told you this story, haven't I? I was hunting with my dad and we were hunting a quail and the dogs went under a fence and we were hunting behind bird dogs under the fence. And my dad said, oh, there's quail over there. There's quail over there. Let's go over there. And so we come to the fence. I go, we can't go over there. We can't go over there because it's, it's posted. He says, yeah, but there's birds over there. Let's go over there. And I says, no, it's against the law. No trespassing. It's against the law. We can't go over there. And I'll always remember this because he just shook his head. He got really serious. And he says, that's not right. That's just not right. We don't own the land. The land owns us. And I think that in that it is a difference of cultures. A lot of people say uh, you can learn from different cultures and some have good, some have bad, but everyone has some good, but everyone has some bad. The point is that uh, we have to get the good from all the cultures and recognize that. And I think a lot of times we don't really respect nature like we should, but then maybe that's just our background. Mm hmm. Well, I think it's a modern society. We sort of we don't live in nature anymore, you know. That's I'm, true. That's I'm right. surrounded by a webcam, computer monitor, speakers, <laughs> a keyboard, a mouse. I don't see a tree. 
<laughs> I don't see a babbling more technology. I don't see a babbling brook. So, I mean, I will in a minute once we get done with this podcast. I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> it's beautiful outside. I know we, we're getting great weather here in Denver, but we got we're 45 minutes in. I said we do one more article. How does that sound? Okay. This is my favorite op-ed columnist. I've always read his column. His name is Paul Krugman. It's the Bidenomics is as American as Apple Pie is the title of the article. Paul Krugman is a Nobel Prize winning economist from Princeton. He's a very leftist economist, um, sort of advocating for, he's always advocated for government intervention during times of crisis. So in 2008, with the TARP, Toxic Asset Relief Program, the Bushes program, and then Obama, Obama's subsequent program, his biggest criticism of it was you didn't go big enough. When you have a problem, government should spend its way out of it. That's his thing. And then he says the Republicans came in in 2008 and they said, what about the deficit? What about inflation? And what we saw was... Uh, you know, deficit gains under Obama or a fraction of deficit gains under Trump where you slash taxes and you cut social spending because it's like, oh, who needs welfare? But you know what? You know, the wealthiest Americans need is more cash in their pocket. You see the the deficits balloon at that point. Well, he's like, that doesn't sort of get a country back on track. What you really do need to do is raise taxes and invest in America to get the country back on track. So that's my 100-yard view of Paul Krugman's economic philosophy before we get into the article. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay, Bidenomics is as American as apple pie by Paul Krugman. House Democrats are hoping to pass President Biden's infrastructure bill by July 4th because, of course, they are. The Biden team is making a point of wrapping its economic initiatives firmly in the flag. First came the American Rescue Plan. Now we have the American Jobs Plan, paid for by the Made in America Tax Plan. And why not? Trumpism was, in part, about the appeal of economic nationalism. So it makes sense to try to snatch away that appeal on behalf of good policy. It's also a preemptive defense against the inevitable Republican attacks. Donald Trump, who still exists, has already denounced Biden's plan to raise corporate taxes as a classic globalist betrayal. No, he isn't making sense. There is, however, more going on here than marketing. Bidenomics consists, roughly speaking, of large-scale public investment paid for with highly progressive taxation. And both of these things are as American as apple pie. The Biden administration infrastructure fact sheet alludes to part of that history, declaring that the plan will invest in America in a way we have not invested since we built the interstate highways and won the space race. Indeed, one way to think about the Biden program is that it's an attempt to bring back the Dwight stuff. That is, in fiscal terms, it would represent a partial return to the Eisenhower era, when we had much higher government investment as a share of gross domestic product than we do now, and also much higher tax rates, both on high-income individuals 
and corporations. The era of big government investment and high taxes on the rich coincided, not incidentally, with the United States economy's greatest generation, the post-war decades of rapidly rising living standards. But the story of public investment and progressive taxation in America goes back much further than the 50s. We've relied on government infrastructure and investment to jumpstart economic growth ever since the construction of the Erie Canal between 1818 and 1825. Unlike the privately owned canals that had proliferated in the 18th century Britain, the Erie Canal was built by the government of New York State at the cost of $7 million. This may not sound like a lot, but the economy was vastly smaller then, and prices much lower too. As a share of state GDP, the canal was probably the equivalent of a $1 trillion national project today. And a big public role in infrastructure continued, down the generations. Land grants were used to promote railway construction and higher education. Teddy Roosevelt built the Panama Canal. FDR brought back electricity to rural areas. Eisenhower built the highway network. So when Republicans denounced the American Jobs Plan as an out-of-control socialist spending spree, remember, large-scale public investment is the American way. We can say much the same thing about Biden's tax proposals. Actually, given extremely low borrowing costs, it's not obvious that we would even need a tax hike if infrastructure spending were the end of the story. But we will need more revenue to pay for the whole Biden program, which everyone expects will eventually include another round of spending targeted on families. So it makes sense to tie tax hikes to jo the jobs plan. Polling suggests that paying for public investment with taxes on corporations and the rich increases support for an infrastructure plan, and that something along the lines of the Biden proposals will command very high public approval. Republicans will no doubt denounce the idea of taxing the rich as un-American class warfare. In reality, however, such taxation is another long tradition in this country. As Thomas Piketty, the inequality scholar, likes to put it, America basically invented progressive taxation. What about Trump's assertion that raising corporate taxes is a form of sinister globalism? The claim here is that reversing some of the 2017 tax cut would drive investment and jobs overseas, a claim that might have some credibility if that cut had in fact induced multinational corporations to bring investments and jobs back home, but it didn't. In practice, the Trump corporate tax cut amounted to a giveaway to shareholders with no visible benefits to the broader economy. And since we're talking about globalism, it's worth pointing out that foreigners own about 40% of U.S. stocks. Wait, there's more. There's a reason Biden's people put the Made in America in the title of their tax plan. They believe that the Trump tax cut wasn't just a huge money loser. It was badly designed in ways that actually encourage corporations to invest abroad and that they can do better. I'll try to get into those weeds in another column. What seems clear is that the Biden tax plan is unlikely to cause job losses and could lead to significant job gains. There will and should be extensive debate over the details of Biden's spend and tax plan over the next few months. In its broad outline, however, the plan represents a turn away from the free market extremism that has ruled U.S. policy in recent years back to an older tradition, the tradition that prevailed during America's years of greatest economic success. There we go, the end. That was pretty good. Yes, I do feel like um, if with the influx of Reaganomics uh, and sort of the idea of trickle-down spending, you know, you give the rich people everything and that'll trickle down to the poor people eventually. That's sort of... Um, 
that's been the Republican orthodoxy since I was born. And it's never really been proven to work. Whereas, uh, you know, investing in infrastructure, building the interstate highway system, you know, doing big, large public works progress has sort of jump-started American innovation and, and the economy. I think that a lot of times the American economy has, has continued to excel in spite of the fiscal policies of Reagan conservatives. Although, you know, if you're a small business owner and you say, my taxes were way higher under Clinton than they were under Bush. I was thriving under Bush and not under Clinton. You know, you may have a different perspective. Where you stand depends on where you sit on all of this. And sometimes a, a policy that can lead to a broad macroeconomic trend may hurt you individually. And so you don't like it. How do you feel about this? <laughs> oh, I, I, think, I think that... Uh... Well, uh, my thinking is uh, when you talk about uh, Biden's tight tax plan and, and the democratic approach of uh, spending would fit into the American uh, experiment of we the people, uh, empower the people. Uh, but in, in empowering the people, uh, you have these uh, government plans like the highway system so that you connect to people. I mean, the Civil War was won primarily on the network of the trains so they could move people and transport people uh, back and forth uh, and uh, the technology. Mm -hmm. But the technology supported the people. And so you, I think, I think uh, uh, our country, uh, the history of our country is built strong because of the people, uh, not because of the government. So when the government supports the people, uh, you're going to make a stronger government. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, another aspect, and this could be totally wrong, and, uh, and you know more about this than I do, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll yield to you if, if I'm wrong. It, it seems like when you go to the Republican side, then you go to the Democratic side, go back to Republican, back to, it's kind of like you don't go down one path. Uh, one kind of like checks the other, and when you're going back and forth, it's kind of like uh, you try to glean the benefits from both approaches. <laughs> and so maybe uh, the democratic approach of spending uh, has, has, you see much more value of that because it, become, it comes on the heels of the top, the trickle down approach of Republicans. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's that going back and forth uh, that really has made our country stronger, that we don't just do it one way. Uh, we we do it more than one way and go back and forth and have flexibility, and so we keep responding and responding. It keeps us on our heels, keeps us on our toes, <laughs> it keeps us running, mm -hmm. and we don't stand still. We don't get stagnant, and so we always have to be responding to something new, and it keeps our attention. It keeps our focus on on uh, on growth and to become strong. I don't know if that's true or not, but I that's just yeah. I'll yield to you if if. There's parts of that argument, there's holes in it. Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like with the HEALS Act, this latest coronavirus stimulus, it was 78% of Americans liked it. 78% of Americans thought it was a good idea. Um, and no Republicans voted for it. And that's just pure politics. The thing is to say, 
well, we need to look at both sides. There's a difference between uh, a conservative American and a conservative congressman because they're playing the game of politics. They're playing the game of legislative uh, one-upsmanship, and that's much different than the game of what do Americans really want. If if you can tell Americans, middle class, lower class Americans, we're going to improve your roads, your schools, your access to internet, we're going to do all of this, and it's not going to cost you anything, we're going to get it from people making over $2 million a year in income and corporations. Uh, most Americans, like, like Paul Krugman said, it's likely to be extremely popular. We'll say, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And then the Republican politicians will say, that sounds completely unreasonable. And there's a difference between being a contrarian when something's a good idea because you're playing a legislative game and the people that will actually benefit from this infrastructure program. I heard Pete Buttigieg on NPR last um, morning, yesterday morning before the podcast. And he he's a very good speaker, first of all. He's very convincing. Um, well... They're asking him about, there's provisions in Biden's infrastructure plan that don't have anything to do with infrastructure. And wh what do you say to that? The Republicans are upset, upset about this. And he's like, yeah, but the Republicans were upset when we had provisions in the latest coronavirus bill that cut child poverty in half because that wasn't coronavirus spending. It's like, I don't think that you should be mad at something that does something good just because it's not in the name of the bill. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you have a really good idea and you're trying to implement it, it shouldn't get disqualified because it's not in the name of the bill. And it's like, that's a pretty good point. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, this is the... Uh, I don't know. This is the me going on vacation act. And it's like... Oh, but you're also going to buy yourself a big meal the night before? Why aren't you wasting money? Like, no, I think that, you know, like being well-fed before I get on a plane is a good idea, you know? Just yeah. We're going back and forth between uh, government spending and then the, the top-down spending and then, and then infrastructure spending and going back and forth between that. You know, I think of uh, creating an infrastructure so people can be successful and productive uh, and uh, creating roads, creating a, a, a communications, and creating uh, the uh, like the water systems and, and social type programs uh, that help people, help people live their lives and build a country. But on the other hand, uh, uh, supporting uh, the, the the larger, the bigger, the bigger uh, uh, companies and the people with the money. Uh, and will make them strong. Uh, the trickle down effects. Uh, I, I see. A, I see a value on both sides. Because uh, uh, if you if you just support infrastructure and that's all, uh, it's kind of like the um, uh, I forget the name of that the the children's story where the chicken uh, made bread and chicken little. Was it as a chicken little that made bread and and everyone wants everyone no one would help them, but then they would all want a piece after they made it, you know, something like that. Now that that could be a wrong analogy, but I think of these large companies get big, but then you start helping the people. If you take if you take away from the rich and give to the poor, and all the poor have the money, 
uh, but there's no one uh, organizing it from top down. Uh, it, it's not about the money. It, it's about the different uh, roles that we play in our economy. We need the CEOs. We need the people at the top organizing uh, these companies. We also need the worker on the ground making it work. But I, th- I think uh, that what, what but you're you saying it's, it's, it's all or nothing. It's not like Biden's plan is take 100% of corporate taxes and you know give it to the people. It's so I think that before the Trump tax cut, the corporate taxation rate was 32%. My numbers may be a little off, but um, after the Trump tax cut, they took seven points off of that to 25% to pay for this infrastructure bill. Biden's raising that to 28%. So it's still 3% less than it was under Obama. And I mean, so the the argument that we need CEOs and we didn't have CEOs under Obama, but we did have them under Trump, that doesn't make sense, you know? So I think you sort of start to look at, well, this side's advocating for a 28, not a a 25% taxation rate. And it's like, nope, we need CEOs. You can't do that. Uh, Because the thing is, the CEOs will be protected. Things, I mean... The CEOs will always find a way to protect themselves, first of all. They're extremely powerful. And just because you're saying, okay, we're going to increase by three points the corporate taxation rate, that doesn't mean we're going to demolish American capitalism. We're going to make sure that CEOs don't exist anymore and it's going to become a communist country. That's, I mean, but that's how a, like, a reactionary Republican might frame the argument. But that's not the truth. Yep. And I'm, I'm talking much more philosophically that when you have both of these views, you need both views. Mm-hmm. You need both of these views working together in concert. But uh, you can't you can't go all one side and all one side and all the other side. If you go too much extreme one way and too much extreme the other way, that's not what's happening. Uh, but I think I think the going back and forth and having something in the middle, I think is I think that's healthy. And that's how we, I think that's how we built our country over the years. I see. Yeah, that, this is more philosophical than, than details. So like, I have a friend, and he has uh, schizophrenia. And if I were to start a company, and he were my partner, and I said, well, I think that we should have a strong fiscal basis, a good market, we should spend some decent money on social media advertising, and we should work Monday through Friday from 8 a.m., to 5 p.m. with a one-hour lunch break from noon to one. And he says, well, I think we should take our initial startup capital and buy 15 Nintendo Switches. So there's a Nintendo Switch at everyone's desk. And I say, well, I don't think that's the prudent course of action. I think that maybe you're crazy. And he says, well, I think that we need both sides in this partnership. I think at some point you have to say, what's being advocated for isn't being advocated for in good faith. Therefore, we don't need to both sides this. If if someone is proposing, uh, well, we need you know to make sure that trillionaires get or billionaires get hundreds and hundreds of millions of extra dollars every year, and if you're making fifty thousand dollars a year, you pay five to six hundred dollars more in taxes. That's how the taxation plan should be structured. Uh, if you make a hundred million, you know we want you to pay ten million less in taxes. But if you make fifty thousand, we want you to pay one thousand more. That doesn't seem fair. But if someone comes up with that idea and says, "No, I, I think that the taxation should be a little bit more progressive," you say, "You're just a commie. We need to both sides this." 
I think that you can't, you shouldn't both side something if someone's not really negotiating in good faith. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I think, I think, I think I do. So, so saying we need to take both sides and, you know, just come to the meet in the middle. And it's like, even if that's, you know, 78% of people favored, almost 80% of the populace favored the, the COVID relief bill. Um, but if you both sides did, you'd come to something that way fewer people actually favored. So you both sides it because you're both sidesing it with one of the actors that's not negotiating in good faith. They're not really representing their constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, so to say just the, the system should be we take one party – who ostensibly represents a constituency in another, and then they decide between themselves to meet in the middle. But what if one of those two parties, what if both, like, well, one of those two parties is clearly not representing the interests of the people uh, that they're elected to represent? Then what do you do? Well, you, you ignore their viewpoint if you're in the majority, right? You don't both sides it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's this idea that, oh, you know, our leaders are going to negotiate in in good faith and they're going to come to compromises and they're going to put aside their personal pride and regardless of their animosity, they're going to try to do what's right for the country. And I think that if you said that to someone, they would laugh and say, that's not how it works. That's not how politics works. Politicians don't think about their constituents and go to Washington to try to, in good faith, work for compromises that will benefit their constituents the most. You know, say, what's going to happen in Congress this year? Well, regardless of what happens, what I know is that these responsible people that we've elected will soberly sit down and work with each other to do what's best for Americans. That's what's going to happen in Congress this year. That's sarcasm. You say that to someone and someone's like, either you're stupid or you're being sarcastic, right? Or ignorant. Or ignorant, yeah. You don't know. Well, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and you're probably probably correct. But what I was saying, going back to your analogy of uh, you're, you have a partner, and he just wants to give Nintendo, Nintendo Switches to everybody <laughs> and let them play all day. Yes. Okay. Well, that's just giving everything that the people need, and that's not productive. That's the uh, socialism well, or whatever? That's the social, yeah, the socialism, which we are not doing that. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, if you say no, let's go the other way. Let's say no, uh, we're going to make everybody work twenty-four hours a day, and they there's no breaks, and they have to produce, 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 and they they have no benefits, and they're going to die within a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not going to be successful either. Yeah, it's true. So, so too far on either side is not successful. We need to have something that supports the worker, but also has uh, legitimate, good faith uh, uh, organization and strategy and and marketing and 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 support uh, and and fiscal fiscal responsibility from the top down, and also from the bottom up. We had to have a really good good. Uh, uh, support uh for the the worker so you have to have both of these things going on yes and it has gone back and forth over over the years and i think it'll be different in the future too but i think, I think what, the pandemic has showed that too i think what paul krugman is saying is that in this article 
what they're going to come up with is going to be reasonable. The HEALS Act was reasonable. The Infrastructure Act will be reasonable. And even though it's going to be reasonable, 100% of one party is going to be against it. And even though 100% of the members of Congress of one party are going to be against it, it might see 60, 70, 80, 90% approval ratings amongst the general public because it's going to be reasonable and it's going to offer people jobs, you know, building out this infrastructure that are paid for by the government. And I think where you stand depends on where you sit. But if you're able, if you've been out of a job because of COVID and someone says, oh, we're doing construction jobs, manufacturing jobs to sort of bolster this $1.2 trillion or $2 trillion infrastructure effort, and all of a sudden you're employed again with a subcontractor to the U.S. government, you might say, hey, this infrastructure thing isn't that bad of an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We're kind of like having, I was having my philosophy. Going back to the article, just like you did, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is good. What, what Krugman was saying is, yeah, is what you said. Yeah, so he is saying, look, this is, this is what's going to happen. Uh, and so this is this is how we're moving. And unfortunately, a lot of these decisions uh, have an element of logic, uh, economics, good for the country. But unfortunately, more and more progressively, there have been uh, arguments based on politics. Yeah. And I think the, the proof is in the pudding when 70% of people support something. And uh, nearly evenly divided, you know, if it's 70-30 in terms of who supports it, if you poll the public, but it's 50-50, and all 50 of those people belong to one party, then is that party really representing their constituents? Are they voting against their constituents? Are they voting against their voters' interests because their constituency isn't actually their voters? Like if you're a Republican voter and you support something, but your congressperson doesn't support it, is your congressperson, is their actual constituent, not you? That's a question you got to ask as well. Well, that's a very good point. And uh, well point well given and that well taken. However, and this is getting off topic a little bit, uh, we've seen in the news uh that Georgia passed a law to change the voting, mm-hmm. suppress the votes that are on the Democratic side. Same in Texas, same in Louisiana. So uh, they're passing laws to way, okay, well, if our constituents don't believe the way we, our, our philosophy, rather than changing our philosophy to match the voters. Let's change the voters. Change the voters. Yeah. And that's exactly what they're doing. And that's scary. They're, and that's what George, that's what Georgia is doing. Change the voters such that the ones that are gonna not gonna vote what we want to do, they can't make it harder for them to vote, so less of them will vote. And if that works, they'll keep doing it more and more and more. And that there should be there should be uh, uh, the basis of our country is on the people, and. Uh, no, there should be voter uh, reform uh, for all the states should have some kind of a uh, checks and balances for the states' rights. They have the right, states have their rights, but there needs to be some kind of a, a unified uh, type of a 
requirement on on voting to let people vote. Maybe moving away from, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to get into that because that's not my area and I don't understand it, but I see the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, and also states' rights is often used to justify doing something more racist than the federal government is capable of doing, like what Georgia is doing. Um, It's rare that someone uses states' rights, although, you know, you could say Colorado, using states' rights to be the first to legalize marijuana. And they say, we have the, the right to do this. We're a state. We have the 10th Amendment. You know, all powers not specifically given to the federal government shall be given to the states. Um, we're going to legalize marijuana. And then we do it. And guess how many bad things have happened because of the legalization of marijuana? Very few. I mean, I'm sure that there are some, so I don't want to say none. But people see that you legalize marijuana and what you get is a steady revenue from tax income because you're taxing the marijuana. You get a brand new industry that brings in thousands of jobs because something's allowed, you're allowed to do something here that you weren't allowed to do anywhere else. And then other states start looking at it and they say, wait, there's minimal downside and all this upside? You create and a brand... Un- and you undermine the illegal trafficking of marijuana. Yes. You create a brand new industry. You employ thousands of people. You fill the state coffers with revenue. And the problems compared to a legal drug like alcohol, you know, there's no... 2 a.m. fights because people smoked too much marijuana. At 2 a.m., it's just Cheeto dust and Netflix playing on autoplay with people smoking marijuana. They're not out in the streets. They're not driving cars. They're not, I mean, so I think that you see fewer social problems with marijuana as well. And that was the state's right issue, rights issue. Should it say like all states' rights issues are just to facilitate racism? It's not true. You can use states' rights to do other things. But in this case, Georgia's using their states' rights to basically reenact Jim Crow laws. And I will say there's – and I, I, I held off on saying this on the podcast because I don't want to be on record as saying it. But <laughs> I won't say the words, obviously, because we do live in a touchy time where words have power and you can get condemned because of your words. But I will say that a person – not me, but some person – could go on national TV – a white person, and say the N-word nonstop for 30 minutes, and it would be less racist than what the state legislators did in Georgia, systematically denying basically African Americans, exclusively African Americans, the right to vote by virtue of changing the policies. I, I, I believe that. And, you know, we sort of say, oh, we don't know if he's a racist. We don't know if he's ever said one of these words you're not allowed to say. And it's like, we do know he's a racist. He is taking steps to systematically deny people their rights. And that's more racist than saying one of the no-no words. Do you see what I'm saying with that analogy? Uh, I absolutely do. Because the former, you can ignore it. Mm-hmm. The latter, you can't ignore it. It's changing our country. Mm-hmm. The former doesn't change a country, just inflames people. The latter changes our country. It changes the basic foundation of the voting of the citizens of the United States to elect uh, our our officials. Yes. And I think there's this litmus test. Have you ever said that? Is there tape of you saying the N-word? 
that means you're a racist. And it's like, no, I think the litmus test for being a racist is, have you ever been a legislator in a state house and you've systematically passed laws that deny black people to vote? That means you're a racist. I mean, I guess it could go both ways. There's not just one way to be a racist, but that's a worst way to, worse way to be a racist than saying a word you're not supposed to say. I, that's just my personal opinion. Words matter, David, words matter. I agree with that. But actions matter more. Yes. I think that's a great place to leave it. Words matter, but actions matter more. Correct? Correct. We can agree on that? I agree. Yeah, we can agree on that. So let's wrap it up there. What do you say? I think we solved... I think by virtue of looking at the New York Times opinion page, we've solved all the world's problems today, right? It was fun. It was good. It was valuable. And everyone should should look at all different ways. You got the music queued up? The music's playing. I think uh, it was good. It was valuable. But what did we do? We talked. So everybody, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye.